Our guest on episode 126 of the Futurite podcast is Moji Karimi, CEO and co-founder of Semvita Factory. In this conversation, we talk about the challenges of scaling up industrial biomanufacturing, the operational challenges, the emerging business models, and the technical challenges and the future outlook. If you're new to the show or seek particular topics, take a look at futurize.org slash episodes and you'll find favorite episodes organized by topic. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors. To check them out, go to futurize.org slash sponsors. And if you're interested in sponsoring, please reach out. Before you do anything else, make sure that you are subscribed to our newsletter uh, by going to futurize.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes with conversations that matter to the future. And please leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite, favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Moji, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing great, actually. I, um, I thought we'd talk a little bit about uh, synthetic biology and how it's, uh, it's sort of really scaling up in an industrial uh, use case uh, or various industrial use cases right now. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a very exciting time for synthetic biology, especially the applications that you know, we've been spending more time on. Uh, around energy transition and climate change. So I've been looking forward to this discussion and sharing more of what we're doing and the, the trends in the industry. Yeah, so you're, you're an entrepreneur. Uh, you're an engineer, I guess, uh, you know, in the origin. You've done your degrees in drilling and, and petroleum engineering. Uh, but you've also... Uh, now for a while worked in on the bio on the bio side i should say yes it's it's quite interesting to me how um these two things are starting to combine and you're down in houston mm-hmm. um i'm i'm uh, i'm interested is uh is what you're doing starting to combine uh you know bio and and, and sort of traditional engineering is that still viewed as you know, do people do a double take when you say, explain what you do? Or is that f- completely understood that you're really part of, of kind of the future here? Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of, you know, turning around the corner, but it's still kind of a new field because the confluence of these two areas is, is not common, right? Which, by the way, that's like what really gets me excited. The, those overlaps that are less understood, the kind of the gray, uncomfortable areas, you know, where people say, oh, what, what does that mean? Like, how does that relate to this right but for me starting off as a petroleum engineer you know traditional drilling new technology for oil and gas and then you know wanted to diversify had an opportunity to join a a startup wanted to commercialize dna sequencing in oil and gas uh, looking at dna of microbes in the oil and rock and building these subsurface maps kind of like 23andme for the subsurface and so that was my introduction to biotech and also realizing the wealth of microbes that are in the subsurface that most times we don't know anything about. Uh, what are they eating? What are they producing? You know, and in the oil and gas industry, they've known of microbiology for a long time, but it's been mostly for problem microbes. You know, a group of microbes called SRBs that produce H2S that causes corrosion. So in the industry, they use a lot of biocides to kill these microbes. It, Microbes are bad, like we have to kill them. That's, that's been really the, the involvement. But what I wanted to bring to the table through the last company and then uh, at Samvita is to say, well, what are the good microbes, uh, you know, that could help us uh, for sustainability applications, biomanufacturing, all the other good stuff uh, we'll talk about today. 
This is fascinating. Moji, I have a question at the outset. When an engineer like yourself jumps into what I would argue then is obviously a, a new way of looking at the field, but also really bringing in bio and chemistry in a way that you perhaps weren't really educated to do. Like you, you had to really dig into your, uh, you know, or, or, or I guess learn new things because this is certainly not what a petroleum engineer when you were educated, spent you know most of their time on. How has that process been for you? Was it was it an easy transition? I'm just thinking because, you know, ostensibly in the next decade, every petroleum engineer, presumably, is going to have to consider these things. Do you think the whole educational system is going to kind of turn towards bio, or is this something that's going to be a much more natural transition? So I, I think you know. Uh, what you're talking about here is speaks to the core of growth, you know, and with growth comes uh, getting out of your comfort zone, learning new skills, new areas. Uh, so that's, that was my approach, you know, okay, you know, this is what I've done so far, but that doesn't mean my education stops and my learning stops. I don't want to become like the expert in one particular thing and just kind of stay there. I want to continue to expand that. Uh, so, you know, Biota was the chance to learn from, you know, uh, Others were in the field to kind of how this is done and what are the bits and pieces, especially with biotech and especially with SynBio, it's kind of fair game for everybody because there's not a long legacy of a lot of the new methods and technology it has comes from 10 years ago. Even if, you know, someone had a degree in biotech uh, in 2000, that doesn't mean they know about SynBio because there's, they had to have learned a lot of those things afterwards, right? Uh, so, but, you know, what does this mean for uh, industries outside of biotech, outside of healthcare and medicine and pharma is really what is robbers meet in the road. And those applications are being defined. And the value that, you know, uh, uh, people inside those industries bring to the table is to translate, what does this mean for us? You know, and a lot of times that's why these applications don't exist today is because these people, they don't talk to each other. You know, the biotech and, you know, for example, oil and gas industry. So it, it, it took someone like me who is within the industry to go and learn this stuff and understand it and then come back and translate it in a language that's digestible for the industry. And they could also listen and then go from there. I, that's what I'm extremely interested in. So with that in mind, how do you explain synthetic biology as this new platform? Like you said, it's, it's less than sort of 10 years old. Um, you know, I've been at MIT with, with many of the professors that developed the field, and they have one way of explaining it, but I'm sure you kind of explain it in a quite different way. Synthetic biology as an industrial platform, as it is, you know, very embryonically sort of growing, growing out now and becoming more of a platform that other industries can use. Uh, what is it to you, and how do you explain it to sort of the industrial audience in, in heavy industries, where, where you, which is your starting point? Yeah, so with the industrial audience who doesn't have kind of the, the deep context in Symbio, the way I explain it is, hey, you all know about fermentation, right? And how beer is made. There's yeast, there's microbes that are used. Uh, typically, they, we feed them sugar, they make alcohol, other, you know, uh, chemicals. But in this case, you know, now we have the ability to use methods like CRISPR that people also know and uh, other methods to define what do we want the microbes to eat and what do we want the microbes to produce? So I explained that, think of microbes as a small chemical plants that now we could control 
you know, the input and the output. And because a lot of these reactions that they do runs under about ambient pressure and temperature, it has just inherent sustainability to it compared to chemical reactions, you know, where you have to activate, you know, even electrochemical reactions and really consume a lot of energy. And I found that that starts to kind of find the common ground, you know, uh, on the oil and gas and downstream petrochemical side, there is also a legacy of biofuels uh, using corn and sugar as a feedstock. So that also kind of feeds into this. There are other enzymatic reactions too. It's just saying, this is the legacy. Now there is all these new things that is being done for uh, by manufacturing of specialty molecules, pharmaceutics, you know, why not use it now for new applications for production of other uh, chemicals and as a way of having, using waste feedstocks uh, for production of uh, N molecules instead of having to always use fossil fuels. Moji, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, uh, the company that you created uh, because you didn't just uh, have a previous company with uh, genetic engineering. You also have an advantage. You have a sister that's deeply embedded in this field and you ended up uh, starting a company with her and she's now uh, the CTO, I guess, of, of this venture. How does that work? Why, why would you start a company with your sister? <laughs> that sounds uh, like... Uh, you guys must be either great friends or just respect each other tremendously in terms of your professional expertise. Yes, it's, it's actually a combination of both of those. And, uh, you know, I got lucky that I had Tara when, when I was kind of, you know, exploring this, what does biotech mean for, uh, you know, industrial applications and her background in biochemistry and synthetic biology was pretty, you know, uh, helping me put a framework around it. And we never thought that there would come a day where we'll be co-founders because I was going on the drilling rig in Midland. She was, you know, going to Texas Heart Institute in MD Anderson, working on regeneration of stem cells for, you know, different application. But I think, you know, uh, synthetic biology kind of brought us together. And at the time, you know, she was also writing a book for a Springer, explaining a lot of the kind of natural biomimicry, you know, and, and how could that could be used for creating a future where humans kind of live in, in harmony with nature, but also leverage the learnings from nature, you know, in, in terms of industrial applications. And we, you know, really zoomed on that and spent a lot of time kind of defining, well, you know, what does this mean if we were to basically build a company and long story short, Kind of landed on using synthetic biology for industrial applications you know particularly using co2 as a feedstock mimicking processes like uh, photosynthesis well biomimicry is an interesting term i mean that's definitely is steeped in in the biological field do you do you use that term with your engineer friends um, and in the industry yeah we do uh, you know we found nature inspired uh, technology kind of resonates differently than biomimicry, which is a bit more of a technical term. Um, also, when when you talk about synthetic biology, is actually it's it's a bit it's becoming strange because is it synthetic really? Because it's it is a biological system, so it's in some ways it's not exactly synthetic. Uh, it's just us figuring out basically hacking biology and how how is this done? You know, if there's a molecule that is if, if there's a microbe that is making a certain chemical, you know, for example, in, in a banana making ethylene, um, how, how could we use that, you know, gene and enzyme to reproduce it 
in a controlled environment. So in some ways, it's, I don't know, maybe that people would change the term from synthetic biology to more like, you know, nature inspired or human influenced biology or something like that. Uh, but altogether, I think it's a really exciting area and, and nature, you know, has a few billion years ahead of us in terms of R&D and there's a lot to, to learn and, and deploy, solve problems. Yeah. So uh, bio is used in an enormous amount of uh, kind of neologism, new words, you know, bioreactor, like the bio is added to a lot of industrial words lately. Um, are we at a stage right now where those uh, terms are justified? So talking about biomanufacturing, bioreactors, all of these things that imply a new biological version of the industrial age, which, you know, in, you know, industry 1 and 2.0, uh, you could say that that's not advanced anymore. But on the other hand, it, it was mass scale. Uh, are we poised for scale right now uh, using biological approaches or is that way too early? I think we're, we're in that kind of transition. Uh, also, just to, to differentiate, this is kind of one of, one of my pet, peeves, pet peeves is when people say bio something. Sometimes it's not that the process was biological. It's just the fetus stock was biological. So if it was biomass or woody biomass or, sh sh you know, sugar or corn, the end product is called, you know, bioethanol or, or, or something. But the, the part that I think is really interesting is where the actual process was biological and people figured out how to make it economical at a scale. I think that's where it's really going to change uh, the industry. And it, it goes beyond just biomanufacturing. I think now we're, there's a lot of work around storing massive amount of data in, in DNA and peptides, you know, as, as a way to kind of create a different future for data storage and computing, um, you know, across the board. Where, you know, um, a lot of these applications are started, you know, like pharmaceutics and specialty molecules, that's, that's already, you know, kind of evolving. But I think using that knowledge and legacy and then bringing these biological processes to solve problems around climate change and energy transition is really where we're going to see the, the massive economical viability of uh, synthetic biology in the next 30 years. Uh, wonderful. Let's talk about climate change and um, this quest for utilizing carbon, uh, either storing carbon or utilizing carbon or both, because you have a pretty specific uh, pointed uh, solution or, or, you know, elements of a solution there. First of all, maybe you can comment a little bit on this massive new space of CO2 kind of startups and also the fact that big oil has in a fairly massive way started to embrace at least the language around the need for this kind of storage. Some of the companies have been financing pretty large, uh, you know, demo projects and there are signals this fall in connection with a kind of an enormous uh, sort of policy push uh, towards sustainability that things are going to actually start to move and shake a little bit in this domain. How, how do you see this space? Is this, is this for real? Are, are these things happening now? And, and with what speed and, and what should we expect from this field? 
Yeah. So, uh, I mean, as someone who's actually worked in the oil and gas industry, I think I could say that, you know, to, to get this industry to change, there's one, one or two things should happen. Either they have to see a way that they could save money or, or make money, or there has to be basically some regulatory framework, basically forcing them to do something differently. And what we're seeing now with the pressure on fossil fuel industry to reduce their emissions, um, you know, is, is that, okay, how do we do that? There's ways that you could, you know, be more efficient, that, you know, you could manage your flares, you could, you know, produce less, maybe, you know, you could start investing in, in solar and wind and have more of a diversified kind of energy portfolio. You see a lot of companies doing that uh, as a kind of long-term strategy. But the other part of it is this area that is called now CCUS, carbon capture, you know, utilization and storage. When we talk about carbon capture and storage, that's not new actually to the oil and gas industry. They've been doing CO2 sequestration in the subsurface. And this process is called CO2 EOR, in-house oil recovery, for a long time, where you inject CO2 to kind of change the miscibility of the oil and then you produce more oil. The part that is new is the direct air capture, you know, capturing that 400 plus ppm of CO2 in the air and then utilizing that for some other useful reaction or storing it in the subsurface and also CO2 utilization behind just producing more oil through CO2 EOR. So those are, you know, capturing the flue gas from power plants, from refineries and natural gas processing facilities. And where the industry is kind of now getting up to speed is what can we do with CO2? Because as you know, it's a very stable molecule. It's a terrible feedstock. Uh, you know, we, we, it takes a lot of energy to, to get it to kind of separate and, and react with things in the way that we want. And that's where, you know, companies like us with synthetic biology, there are other companies with new catalysts, uh, you know, chemical reactions coming to, to table and say, okay, we could turn CO2 into something else that is useful. Uh, whether if it's fuels, you know, whether if it's uh, other chemicals that go into polymers and plastics, uh, because a lot of the industry are now realizing that just CO2 storage by itself is kind of a transitional solution because you have to spend money doing that. You don't make money. And to your point, you can rely on government incentives for a long time. Right now we have 45Q that gives companies, you know, up to $50 per ton of CO2 that they store. Uh, but you know, they have to spend money doing that. And the 45Q is not, is not the money that they just give to them. It's almost like a tax write-off because it's a credit. So long-term, a lot of people, including myself, believe that CO2 utilization is the way to go because the moment that the companies could realize a way to turn that CO2 into something else that's valuable, then they're just going to do more of that, you know, and that just creates this new economy. And that's the way to basically, you know, lower the carbon footprint of polymers, plastics, fuels across the board, while continuing to enjoy the infrastructure that we already have, both in developed countries and also in you know, countries that are now coming up to speed. And we're asking them to not use fossil fuels and just somehow jump over, over the learning curve and start using solar and wind from the get-go. And that's difficult as well. So it's a complex issue with energy transition, but we think that CCUS is a big part of the solution, which is why you see a huge push from the industry in really getting these technologies to scale as soon as possible.
So, exactly. Well, so it's as soon as possible and at what scale and how safe and uh, with what energy utilization, right? So there are a lot of questions here. Um, how, how many companies, how many startups, for example, are there right now in the space uh, specifically on utilization? So like direct competitors, I guess, of, you, of your approaches? I would, I would say at least probably 50 to 100 that I know about. I'm sure there's a lot more. Um, I think that the area has now become obvious. So there's a lot of new companies also coming up kind of on, on a weekly basis. Uh, they all have also different approaches, you know, like biological methods, uh, whether to other products or to, you know, biomass or biochar and have that be the, the product or using CO2 in the process of making concrete, turning the CO2 into like some mineralized kind of, uh, you know, form as a method of storage and sometimes you could actually use that as feedstock for other processes um, electrochemical ways of converting co2 to other products uh, and then there's a lot of research also in uh, more efficient ways of storing co2 so how, how to store more co2 uh, in a subsurface or you know so that you could you know uh, do that more effectively and, and and cheaper basically and then there's direct air capture hmm. Um, but the direct air capture is, is always has to be tied to some other, because you capture the CO2, congratulations. Now you have to do something with it, right? Um, so you see even uh, if, you've, if you've seen the recent uh, Elon Musk prize, the 100 million, uh, that's what it speaks to, right? You know, how could we capture a lot of CO2, but then there is the economical viability of it because, you know, who's going to pay for that, right? Where's the energy is going to come from for direct air capture? And a lot of times when you attach the utilization, if you could turn the CO2 into something else that's more valuable, that's how you pay for the energy. That's how you pay for the direct air capture, as opposed to just you know storing it and not have any revenue on the back end. Moji, uh, take this down a little. Give me some uh, kind of down-to-earth use cases, <coughs> pardon, that you are currently exploring that are like, two to five years out that are not, you know, space age things. We can talk about that too. Um, after all, you know, we, we're talking about the future here, but, but give me some of the more lower end use cases for heavy industry, for big emitters, where they can start now to put in place systems that could build these uh, sort of good microbes and can start slowly scaling as they're proving themselves out. What what are what are like one or two uh, of these very uh, kind of the safest use mm -hmm. cases that you're exploring? Yeah. So the the one that you know we we've spoken about publicly, which I think is a good example to use here, is a project that we're doing uh, for conversion of CO two to bioethylene. Um, in that case, you know I mentioned briefly we took it you know, gene for the ethylene forming enzyme from banana, we engineered it into our microbial system that now uses CO2 and water as feedstock and then converting that into bioethylene and oxygen. Um, so in that case, you know, at a scale, we could utilize about 1.7 million tons of CO2 per year, which is coming from, you know, natural gas, uh, cogent power plant, basically. Um, and then uh, turning that into one billion pounds of bioethylene per year. Uh, this could be done actually as about cost parity to using fossil fuels for production of ethylene. Now, what does this mean, right? 
Ethylene is the biggest organic molecule in the world, right? so it goes into our polymers and plastics. In terms of how fast can we get there, you know, in this case, for our company, we've done this in the lab scale already. Now we're scaling the process up a thousand times, which we'll finish next year. And then right after that, we're ready to scale up to what we're calling pre-commercial demonstration plant. And these are modular units. So once we build that pre-commercial unit, then from that to commercial is just adding 10 more of that. So we could have that up and running, you know, by 2025. And a lot of the other technologies that are working on suture utilization are at about the same kind of uh, stage. You know, uh, in the US, we use the TRL uh, metric, the technology readiness level of kind of maybe I would say four to five, uh, but they are going to be, you know, eight to nine within the next kind of four to five years. And then this, this is just going to change the whole dynamics of uh, how emissions are treated, uh, storage versus utilization use cases, uh, both for conversion of CO2 to chemicals and in other cases to uh, fuels. So, so just to be clear, this bioethylene that you are currently producing can both become uh, bioplastics or go into pl some, some version of plastics and it can go into fuel. Those are the two use cases. Yes, there are, there are different pathways because one thing that our company does, we, we don't create new molecules. We don't create chemicals that people are not used to, then they have to figure out, well, how does this fit into our existing you know, system? We, we, the, we just call it drop-in, right? So it's the same, the molecule is the exact same as the one that's made with fossil fuels. So they just use it for the rest of the process. This particular client that we have, actually they use all the ethylene and they buy a lot more ethylene to make VCM, vinyl chloride monomer, which, in, which then you put VCMs together, you get to PVC, right? So uh, it's a big deal for them to have a pathway to producing low carbon PVC because that's what the consumers are asking for. So it, what's happening in the market is, you know, it is started with consumers asking for, you know, more sustainable products in the store, right? But then the guy that is making the product is asking their own suppliers about low carbon products and they're asking their own suppliers. So comes all the way up to the ethylene producer. And no one wants to be dumped, you know, kind of a carbon footprint. They want the suppliers to actually take carbon footprint off their plate because everyone has to do the life cycle assessment. Um, and that's why there is this demand for low carbon uh, intermediate chemicals and people pay premiums for that. Like right now for green ethylene, which is made from sugar, or corn, it, basically there is a 30 to 50% premium over fossil fuel ethylene. And that's actually part of, you know, the, the, the business model and the funding that goes into developing the R&D uh, for low carbon products in the next few years. Moji, how do you see this industrial ecosystem evolving? Is it going to be a lot of specialty producers of tiny, tiny elements of this very long, new sort of greener uh bio value chain kind of within the uh, petrochemical sort of industry just to take that one or are the giants of the past going to kind of acquire themselves into producers of the whole value chain because they need to control the life cycle and control all of the parameters of the process i mean that, that's a good question because it, it's not just a technical 
question. It's a, a business strategy for different companies. Uh, how, how far off do they want to uh, vertically integrate? What we're seeing right now is not a lot of that, but more collaboration. You know, so you see, give an example, you know, one of our uh, uh, peer companies, Lanzotech, that makes uh, intermediates also from CO2, they have, you know, agreements with, you know, Lululemon to say, oh, we make the feeder stock and you guys then make the product. So they, the two come together, right? There's another agreement with Total and L'Oreal, where the different parties from different parts of the supply chain come together and produce a product. You know, one part has the technology for CO2 to an intermediate, other part has basically they're funding the whole project and then there is the end brand. So what's happening is big name companies, uh, you know, that are not known as consumer companies are now reaching out to the consumer companies that own the brand and kind of working together for the low carbon products that they're marketing so that the big name mm. Uh, you know, companies, uh, chemical companies could also enjoy the benefits of being in the eye of the public, showcasing the work that they're doing to enable uh, those low carbon products. Talk to me a little bit about the synthetic bio, the SynBio industry for a moment, because there is one giant there now, which is uh, MIT spin out Ginkgo Bioworks, and they have been building these bio foundries now for, for years, um, but they are they see themselves as a pla as the platform company, I guess, mm -hmm. but certainly a platform company in this new bioeconomy built on sort of synthetic biology as a as a platform service to almost every industry. That's at least how they have been pitching, you know, what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Is to what extent does all of these use cases depend on a bunch of or or a selection of of platforms uh, of that size, right, where they actually have uh, scaling capability that they can offer to clients and also themselves can produce large amounts of whatever, uh, you know, biological improvements that they, uh, they are making because, you know, their, their case sort of was that a bio never was engineering and, and, you know, until it becomes an engineered process, uh, at scale, even if the potential is great, mm -hmm traditional industry is just not going to adopt it. That has been sort of their thesis. So they're, they're building this out at scale so that these biofoundries can actually cater, uh, uh, you know, to a process that, that is industrial in nature. What, what is the importance of that? And, and w what are the functionalities that have to be built, uh, you know, still for synthetic biology to be a realistic scaling platform for literally any anybody that can just sort of plug in and and say I want a layer of SynBio in my business and I'm willing to buy it from a third party. Right. So it's it's such an interesting time. I mean, we're big fans of Ginkgo Bioworks and the platform that they're building. I think there is a lot of ways that could enable a lot of applications, you know, uh, the way that they kind of explain in Jason Kelly the explaining kind of the, the what Ginkgo does is the the operating system, right? And then there's apps kind of using the iPhone example. Um, so you need both, uh, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's the applications that's going to define the value of the platform. The platform by itself is not going to create that economical viability that people are looking for. Already people are asking like, well, show me the product, show me where this has been scaled and is actually delivering value. 
there are examples that exist are very small scale. So if you using the same app example, you know, like fragrances and, you know, THC uh, applications or cosmetics, that's like an app for, you know, farmers in Louisiana dating app. Whereas energy transition, making industry chemicals from CO2, biomining, that's Netflix, that's a Spotify. And that platform needs in Netflix and Spotify in the next few years to show the economical viability. And then on the back end of that, expand into all kinds of applications. So that's what we're hoping to unlock in the area where we're applying synthetic biology to show people this is viable, this could be done at a scale, both in a uh, you know, biomanufacturing setup, also in some of the in-situ applications of SynBio, where we're not building large facilities on surface, but we're deploying the microbes in the environment, you know, in the mining location or in the subsurface, which I'm happy to talk more about and show that, okay, under controlled environment, microbes could deliver economical value uh, and synthetic biology enables that, you know, because we engineer exactly what we want the microbes to do. Um, let's stop every second because you engineer exactly what you want the microbes to do. Um, this is not so much talked about partly because people just don't understand, I'm assuming, you know, what, what positive microbes can do. Um, but certainly in earlier times in sci-fi, you know, uh, similar to with AI, there are these fears that these microbes are going to go bananas to use your bioethylene <laughs> example, right? And they're going to go crazy. So I don't know what that would look like, but uh, they would, you know, rot uncontrollably basically and or, or, or kind of start to eat, like you said, uh, you know, the petroleum industry's version of microbes has always been negative. Um, there's a reason, however, why that impression is there, because, you know, for ages and ages, for, I mean, for the entire uh, duration of the petroleum industry since the 70s, these microbes have been corrosive and negative and have been a cost factor. So you would have to understand that one objection that even a neophyte or someone who doesn't even know or even a consumer could lever, uh, leverage against this whole development is to say, what if you guys lose control here? What do you say to that kind of fear? Yeah, um, first off, I understand it. There's probably more than a dozen movies that start off that way, right? And, and usually they're in the space, in the International Space Station, and then it just kind of blows up. There are other uh, larger scale examples of like invasive species that take over and things like that. Um, but what I would say is, you know, there's two sides to this, right? So, and I think COVID actually brought that to light, you know, like how powerful this little things that you can't even see could be. And in order to be able to kind of, you know, uh, reverse the damage or whatever, you also need to really know what's going on. So that's the importance of, uh, you know, like really improving the field of science and research. When it comes to large scale applications, there is actually a lot of safeguards in place. Some of that, that, you know, sometimes people don't draw the comparables are already being done, say in the agriculture industry, um, you know, and that's how we're feeding the world, right? Uh, but in, in our case, a lot of those safeguards are basically focusing on closed systems, you know, where it's, you know, where you have control over kind of where microbes are doing what they're doing. Also, developing microbes that 
could only survive in the intended environment. So if they're out of that environment, they basically just die. There's kill switches that has been talked about uh, as well. Um, and then there's, you know, regulations as well. There's also differentiation between, uh, you know, using microbes that already have a particular gene because that's already there, right? And if you do enhancements to it, it's basically, you know, there was an alleyway that you're expanding a little bit, maybe into a highway, but the alleyway was already there. Um, as opposed to sometimes bringing a gene from a different microbes, inserting it into a completely different microbe. Now that's, you know, engineered. Uh, you know, it could, is, is GMO. So then there is more uh, scrutiny on that and making sure it's in a closed system. So at the end of the day, at least the way it's treated in the U.S. is to bring on the case to the EPA, say, this is what we're doing at the R&D scale. This is the good about it. This is the risks. Is this worth, you know, is it safe to proceed? And if it is safe, then you proceed and basically scale from there. But uh, there's definitely, you know, several checkpoints before these are uh, applied at a scale, um, you know, in closed systems. On the medical side, uh, I hear, you know, some quite a bit, actually, of, of complaints when it comes to synthetic approaches, uh, both in the U.S. And, and, and elsewhere for complaining about regulators not either understanding or putting in place so-called safeguards that are essentially just reducing innovation. But there is both going on here, isn't there? I mean, there, there has to be some safeguards and, and also it's hard to put in place safeguards that are actually not detrimental to, to business innovation. What, what do you think uh, is, is happening in that space? Are you finding that uh, regulators are able to uh, track what's going on and will be able to uh, sort of like keep a smart, watchful eye on what, what's happening? Do you feel like that is a path forward or do you, do you sort of generally just see regulations as uh, almost like a necessary evil here because there clearly uh, is a lot of innovation happening or needed to happen for for this industry to to evolve so the question is what, what is regulation going to be is it going to be an enabler or is it going to be just sort of a necessary evil that you know we all want there but we just can't make it perfect yeah i mean that's like a, a long um it depends right but I think uh, I don't see it as a necessary evil. I understand, you know, the necessity of it. But uh, the way things have been done, every regulation is because someone already went too far and then they kind of reacted to it. And that's now we have this thing. Right. So it's, it's there for good reason. Sometimes, you know, one bad guy also messes it up for everybody else. Right. Um, but I think part of it is like on the industry, you know, Ginkgo Bioworks as kind of taking the lead and other companies to be more proactive about this. Like even for us being a small company, we do go to Washington DC. We have channels where we explain what we're doing. What are the species that we're using? What are the use cases? What are the safeguards? Getting feedback from them early on in the lifetime of the project so that their regulators are more educated about how this is done and the implications so that there's less surprises in the process that could impede the you know the deployment of the technology or for them to like expose, you know, the country to, to, to risks. Like you mentioned, a lot of the angle that they've kind of come from is viruses and pathogens and like microbial weapons and stuff. And some of that spills over when, when someone talks about Symbio, 
uh, they think it's oh well is this the same thing or how's this different you know we have even when we're fundraising like investors they all have to like check all those and there's a big list of export and import controls and you know all of that stuff but i think we've seen bio and bio manufacturing when you look at you know a lot of cases we're just using e coli and that's very well understood you know it's not something that could really pose a huge you know risk uh, there's some other you know more like non-model type of microbes that are being used to you know that are being kind of the risk but i think at the end of the day it's just uh you know companies being more proactive and, and talking with the regulators coming together and have like in industry syndicates that is doing that proactively so that there's less surprises in the pathway of commercialization. Got it. Uh, Moji, if I uh, may ask you about the next decade, uh, you know, both in terms of the industry that you're part of building out and, and also in terms of climate change and the prospect that large emitters are actually going to become medium emitters and maybe not even qualify as large emitters by the end of the decade, which actually probably is where we need to move if we're going to reduce, uh, you know, temperatures and uh, and a lot of fallout. Basically, um, are you optimistic that's going to happen, or or are you sort of is that not even you know within the realm of possibility? Where where are you on sort of like reversing or slowing down kind of climate change through <clears throat> through for example co2 actions or or, or or any other methods yeah so uh, i mean uh, you know name of the podcast is futurized right and in our company we have a huge focus on future we have actually a big on the wall you know the quote from abram lincoln and, and others you know that talks about the best way to you know uh, predict the future is to create it right so that's our approach and so okay what do we want the future to look like and if we engineer back from that, what should we be doing today, you know? And that's how we have, like, we have an internal goal for utilizing one gigaton of CO2 per year by 2050, and then kind of scaling that back. You know, molecules like ethylene is a huge part of that because it's a type of molecule that uses a lot of CO2 in the process, but it goes beyond just some beta. Like we're, and that's why we've taken also this platform approach and working with companies so that we enable them to build the first plant and then we could leverage their expertise in a scale to build a lot more plants around the world which means you know the multiplications across that 1.7 million tons per year right um but looking at uh you know kind of 10 years from now i have the optimistic view and basically focusing on what is the piece of the puzzle that we could have an impact on of course there is a lot more in play with the governments and policies and you know, China and emissions and how, how all of that is going to evolve at the end of the day, if kind of humanity will come together and think of, okay, we're all impacted by this. It's not just because some companies, you know, have a head start and already use fossil fuels and developed into what they are today and others are starting kind of balancing, uh, you know, all of that off. But I think that I see climate change actually as a kind of a technology problem. Uh, we, we have enjoyed uh, using fossil fuels has gotten us to this point, but now we're realizing more tangibly that, oh, wait, there's also problems that are being created. And maybe we need to like take a step back and think more broadly about do we just continue doing that and say, oh, you know, next generations, they could fend for themselves. They could figure this out or be more responsible and think beyond just the next, you know, uh, 30, 50 years uh, for next generations and, you know, take measures now to create a kind of a balanced approach 
to what the future is. For us, uh, you know, we don't come at this from the kind of environmental point of view. It's like, oh, well, fossil fuels needs to stop today. You know, this is complex. You know, we can't do that. But it's like, okay, if emissions is the problem, is there a technology solution for that? And if the technology solution is CO2 utilization, it just makes logical sense to develop that and utilize the infrastructure we already have. But on the other hand, turn the emissions into something else that's useful. So that's our focus to contributing, you know, in the next 10 years and reducing emissions and also creating a future that we all deserve. Well, it's uh, a complicated area. I uh, commend you for, you know, having produced a, a company that's innovating in this space. Um, it's exciting to hear about what you're up to. I, I hope to be able to track you and see uh, see what happens ostensibly in, in this space. It, it seems like uh, you have a dedicated uh, a group of people with you. Um, thank you for sharing. Thanks for uh, being on the podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. I would love to maybe come back after five years and report back <laughs> some of the things we talked about and also the other exciting exciting you know moves uh, in the industry, both for Symbio and uh, for energy transition. So thanks for having us. Yeah, let's definitely do that. Maybe even before five years, but I like your five-year plan. Let's see if you can accomplish <laughs> It's like, so. where do you see yourself in <laughs> five years? <laughs> I'll come back and share. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Well, Moji, thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. You have just listened to episode 126 of the Futurized podcast with host Trunar Neuenheim, futurist and author. If you're interested in uh, my products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books, such as Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, Leadership from Below, or the brand new forthcoming book, Augmented Lean. The topic in this episode was industrial biomanufacturing, and we talked about the scaling challenges in this new industrial endeavor. My takeaway is that industrializing microbes is both fascinating and scary. Can biology truly be put under human control to fix our energy challenges, reduce emissions, and put us towards the path of regenerative economic growth? Time will show, but startups such as Semvita are making headway. There is no question of the need for industrial biomanufacturing as a novel approach. Surprisingly, what seems to be the biggest challenge isn't the deep science itself, but the operational challenges in scaling the technology properly so that the promising use cases can materialize in sync with market expectations. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 120 on regenerative medicine, episode 90 on upskilling youth for the 21st century bioeconomy, or episode 123 on regenerative business. Hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. Please share this show with those you care about. And to find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized. Conversations that matter.